Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Well, hello, Dr. Duran. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you on today. So this is kind of almost like our part two of getting to know our Stanley nutritional experts. Uh, we did Dr. Tanya Cubit in the first episode, and so we're excited to swing back around and uh, talk to you and get to know you a little bit better. Perfect. So I want to set the stage a little bit, and you're the owner and founder of PHN Performance Horse Nutrition, and you currently reside in Idaho. So you were raised in eastern Idaho, right? That is correct. I was raised on a ranch in a little community called Soda Springs, Idaho. Nice. So what did your family do on the ranch? Did you guys raise cattle and have horses and other livestock? It was kind of a, yeah, it was kind of an interesting deal. My dad was a educator for the University of Idaho. He was an extension specialist. So he was the state horse specialist and the state beef specialist for the University of Idaho. So as you would guess, growing up, we we had countless farm animals. We raised chickens, we had sheep, we had horses, and we summered cattle on our ranch. So you were kind of inundated in the best way with all a variety of species and everything, especially with him being involved in extension work. Yeah, exactly. And and as a, a teacher or as instructor, we were very um, hands-on, so to speak. You know, he would show us how to do something, and then it was nothing for him to let us try and 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 do that. You know, procedure or whatever we happened to do, especially with like sheep and lambing and and cattle and doctoring and stuff like that. He was very hands-on that we needed to learn those things. So it was a great childhood from that standpoint. Oh yeah, I bet not not a lot of kids always have opportunities like that growing up. Um, to really get that hands-on experience and especially from for something that is so hands-on visual type of experience work uh, that's really neat to be able to experience I think as a kid growing up yeah and with the with the horses it was that way as well I mean we we obviously had lots of horses growing up ranch horses but we had a firm rule that you had to use the same horse for everything. So you had to mm, be able to yeah. go out and, and doctor cattle. You had to be able to go to a 4-H meeting and then maybe go to a youth rodeo and use the, the exact same horse. So it taught us to be very, very Versatile. good with what we did and and not to, uh, uh, I guess, abuse our ride or our ride wouldn't work in some other disciplines. Right. So it was very hands-on from that standpoint. That's good. So you got your your stock was pretty versatile then in uh, in in the things that they were able to do and accomplish for you. Yeah, and then we also were were kind of inundated with the the training as most young kids growing up and and riding horses. Uh, eventually, you think that you may want to be a trainer, you may want to do that. And my dad was very encouraging in the sense that he let me start um, outside horses for people. Uh, and then that progressed to the point where 
we actually, every spring, my brother and I would go and, and we'd buy a trailer load of young horses. Yeah. And we would start them all summer. And then in the fall, we would sell them as, as broke horses. And if you messed something up or didn't get something started right, then you had to keep them over the winter. Well, then that was lost profit, if you will. Right, because so you was had to almost, feed them. <laughs> exactly. So that was almost a summer job, so to speak. That's actually pretty neat. So you you and your, your brother did that in high school? Yeah, junior high and, and high school we started. And so you'd get the you know, the Western Horseman publication, and they would have, you know, some sort of, of training article in there. And I, I would sit there and I'd read it. I go, geez, I wonder if that would work on my horse. Mm-hmm. And that afternoon, I'd be out there trying all sorts of, of you know, different methods to, to train horses and, and some of them successful, some of them not as successful, but it was probably more pilot error than, than certainly horse. <laughs> yeah. Error. Yeah, but those are all good learning experiences, right? Even if things aren't successful, like you can learn a lot from failure. So especially as a kid, I feel like that's a really important life lesson to to experience. Yeah, and I, I've got a few scars, but but nothing didn't get killed. So hey, yeah. the scars tell stories, right? So exactly. <laughs> Growing up, um, did you compete then? You kind of casually mentioned a little bit about youth rodeos and things like that. Did you show or compete with horses in addition to like the training that you did? Uh, yes. So we were certainly involved initially in the, in the 4-H. So you, you would compete through that. And then we also um, did the junior rodeo. So although that wasn't so much roping as much as, you know, riding other things that bucked. Yeah. We thought we were, we thought we were quite good at that as well. So did you do that? Did Did you do saddle bronc or what did you do? No, it was, I was always afraid of horses that bucked. I never liked my horses to buck. So I always went for the other discipline and, and rode bulls. Oh, bulls. You'd rather have a bucking bull than a bucking horse, huh? That's yeah, something about a horse that bucks makes me nervous because, you know, as a, as a would-be trainer, thought yeah. I was a trainer at that site, you didn't ever want the horses to buck unless right. it was absolutely necessary. Yeah, yeah. So, so you were a bull rider back in the day. I did not yep. know that, but that's an interesting tidbit that I just learned today. <laughs> so I probably peaked very early and then it <laughs> went downhill after that. <laughs> so what what inspired you? I mean, you, you grew up just completely surrounded by um, livestock and horses. So what inspired you to pursue a higher education in equine nutrition and exercise physiology then? Well, education was always very important to our family. So at the family dinner table, it was never a discussion of of if you're going to college, but when you're going to college. Uh, so I started at the, the University of Idaho, didn't really have a clue what to major in. So uh, I went with what I thought was my strength, which was animal science and, and did well and, and liked that. One of the career choices that you always have an opportunity for is, you know, do you want to become a, a veterinarian? That seems like a very logical choice for many people. Yeah. But my experience with veterinarians growing up is they worked very long hours and they weren't always paid uh, for their level of expertise or knowledge. And I, it just didn't really appeal to me. So my junior year in in college, my dad had to go to some equine meetings in Lexington, Kentucky, and he asked me if I wanted to go. 
And so I went and the, the meetings were on nutrition and physiology, not only exercise physiology, but also reproductive physiology. Interesting. And I was like a duck to water. It was the, they were talking about the things that I was learning about currently in nutrition and currently in exercise physiology classes. And I, I told him, I think I may want to do this. And he introduced me to Dr. John Baker, who was a professor at the University of Kentucky. And um, he offered me an assistantship, which is basically a master's level position where you uh, help teach a class and in turn you're, you're paid or some of your education expenses are offset. So I, I started, after I finished my undergraduate, I started a master's degree in nutrition and exercise physiology at the University of Kentucky. Nice. Okay. And so then you stayed there for your PhD as well, correct? Exactly. I did my PhD. And then uh, after my master's and before I started my PhD, I, I came back to Idaho for, for six months. I was you know tired of, of school and tired oh, of, okay. of s s traffic lights in Lexington. And yeah. uh, I just needed to come back. So I came back to Idaho and I worked for a place called the Salmon River Lodge, which was a guiding and outfitting service in the Frank Church Wilderness area of Idaho. Yeah. And it, it was an absolute blast because I knew tons about horses. So they were always asking me, well, how long does a horse have to graze to get enough to eat? And when can we catch him and tie him back up? And, and some of those questions, but I just actually enjoyed it because it was a, a, a vacation. I could kind of forget about school for a while. Then I finished that and then went, went back to work after the fall hunting season, went back to the university of Kentucky and, and started headlong into my PhD program. So you really went from from Lexington, Kentucky to the Frank Church Wilderness, which for anybody not from Idaho or not familiar with that area, you really can't get any more remote <laughs> than that. So that, that's correct. I don't know. That sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> I yeah, um, no motor driven vehicles, no telephones, no anything. And one of the, the challenges I had there is my master's work was accepted to, to be presented at the International Conference of Equine Exercise Physiology. And that conference that year was being held in La Jolla, California. Okay. And I remember my uh, assistant professor that was in charge of my master's program actually had to come out to Idaho and I had to ride 30 miles out of the back country to meet him so that he could give me my slides yeah. so that I could go to this um, California presentation and present my master's work. Oh, what an experience. That's, that's neat. Um, I, well, and it's nice that, uh, how many years, how many years did you go to school between, you know, from starting your initial college experience through PhD? Is that eight years? Six so years? it was four years, four years for a, um, undergraduate degree, then two years for a master's and three years for a PhD. So oh, okay. a lot. Yeah, a lot. So, well, I see why you, you know, would want a break from, um, all of, all of the, all of that work and everything, but it's always good to kind of pull back and get, get refreshed. And especially, you know, when you have such a love for horses and and things like that. It's, it's kind of nice to kind of go back to like where you initially started all that from to re-energize you, I guess. 
Yeah, I was I was ready for a break, and that was kind of the ultimate break, if you will. Yeah, I I would agree with that because that's a pretty neat area. If any if anybody has a chance to get out to Idaho and do anything like a, a guided trip back into the Frank Church Wilderness, that's it's pretty neat country. So between when when you graduated with your PhD, between that and before you started performance horse nutrition, what did what did you do? What was kind of your career path at that point? My first job after my PhD was working for a feed manufacturer in central Kentucky, uh, an equine only mill. So we made feed just for horses. So we were feeding horses like uh, Seattle Slough and you know some of the greats of of thoroughbred racing. And that was my very first job. So I did the formulation for for those diets and helped them create new products. And and then I worked very closely with the the individual breeding farms. We had a weighing program where we tracked growth rate and and did those sorts of things. So that was my initial job. And then immediately prior to performing performance horse nutrition, I worked for an international consulting company called Kentucky Equine Research. And that allowed me to move out to Idaho where we wanted to raise our family. I wanted my children to be very much raised um, in the same fashion where they had animals and that sort of thing. So uh, I thought Idaho offered our best approach for that. So my wife and I and two children moved back to Idaho and I worked for Kentucky Quine Research where literally I I could work from my office here and and then travel and then when i i travel i may be in lexington one week home a week and then i may be in jamaica for three days and then you know on to canada or new zealand or australia so it gave me a lot of international experience that's pretty neat uh a lot of cultural experience in different areas of um how they how they utilize horses or have horses. So that's a pretty cool experience to, to have. Well, and then having that flexibility, I guess, too, to be, you know, in one of the places that you really enjoy the most and raising your kids there, you ended up, you wound up on the other side of the state of Idaho. How's that? How's that difference for you? Is it, is it similar just because of the area that you're in is still a little bit, you know, smaller community still? still? Yeah, it's still a rural community, um, and and we wanted that. And literally, we 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 chose the place we live in. Uh, we knew that because I worked for Kentucky Equine Research and would have to spend a significant part of my life on airplanes. Yeah, that I needed to be close to Boise. That so, okay? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So that's why you ended up being there. Yeah, so we just drew an eighty-mile little circle around Boise and said, "All right, where's a small community that has good schools for the children?" And when we moved here, literally, we did not know a soul. We just moved here. You just came there and showed up and here you are now. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So then between all of that, how did, how did performance horse nutrition start? Was there a moment when you realized that you wanted to run your own nutrition company, consulting company? Yeah, um, exactly. So uh, working for 
for uh, Kentucky Coin Research, I got to do a lot of traveling, but then the traveling got to where I couldn't really control it. Um, I was okay. doing so much of their international stuff. I was gone all the time and beginning to miss some birthdays and some other things that I wanted to to definitely be a part of. So I just kind of had one of those moments and said, you know, I can do this. And I, I just decided one day, I, I remember coming home and telling my wife for, on a trip, I said, I think I'm going to quit my job. How much savings do we have? How long before I have to have another one? Yeah. And and so she gave me the, the timeline and, and I just set about to get some new clients and, and started literally performance horse nutrition on a, on a shoestring. That's, that's really great though. I mean, I think at some point, a lot of people kind of have those moments in their life where, you know, you have your family and you know, finding that that work life balance is very difficult. And so kind of taking the reins uh, and taking control a bit, um, being able to work for yourself allows you that flexibility to be able to be home and not miss out, especially when you have your kids growing up and wanting to be a part of all those special moments and, and things like that. Yeah. And it was, it was important to me and, and I wanted to do that. And you know, I still have that that work ethic where I I st- still spend way too much time in the in the office and always have to make up for it on the other side. But being a, in in private consulting, uh, it's not like uh, working for a corporation or something like that because you only get paid when you work. So you know, there's a certain amount of drive to get things done. Yeah, there's a lot of motivation there. But it's similar to the, you know, what what farmers and ranchers have to do. You know, if they don't yeah. get up and and fix the fence and cut the hay and do that, they they can't get paid. So right. it's kind of a natural progression. Just my <laughs> very whole good incentive. Upbringing, yeah. Exactly, my whole upbringing kind of set me up for this type of career. Okay, so then tell me about bringing Dr. Cubit on board. How did how did that kind of come about and how has that impacted performance hearse nutrition? It typical Dr. Duran format. I quickly found that I had way too much to do. I got too many clients and um that's a good the, problem. Exactly. The life <laughs> that I was trying to escape of being gone all the time now I was creating for myself. Yes. So I had decided, all right, I have enough that I think I can keep another person busy. So I had, I'd met Dr. Q, but I'd met Tanya uh, several times and, and you've already been introduced to her. She's Australian. So you about have to have an interpreter to understand what she says. <laughs> she's, she's gotten a lot better than she used to, but um, I, I knew Dr. Cubit, and I knew her communication style is like a lot of Australians. She's very direct. She's very goal orientated. So I thought, all right, this this will work. And so I interviewed her and and offered her a job and told her that I would deflect her illegal alien status until I could find her a husband and and do that. <laughs> She'll she'll deny all that. So, so that worked out nicely. Win win for everybody. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So how how long had you started performance horse nutrition before you did have to bring her on? Uh, I was a full five or six years into it before okay. I finally just overwhelmed myself and, and kind of came to that realization to that. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a real tough decision because, you know, you work hard and you say, okay, now my, my income's where I want it to be, but now I'm gone. And then you say, all right, well, if I bring somebody on, I have to do twice as much because I have to pay her as well. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it took me a while to kind of figure out how to to delegate and, and the things that she could do well and, and, and the things that our customers liked about working with her. I had to figure all that out. So it took a bit, but um, it was definitely something that needed to happen. Yeah. And you still do travel, obviously, just not to the extent that you did previously, um, which probably helps having another person on board because then you guys can split that travel and then split some of your um, domestic work and everything too. Yeah. We always try to keep somebody in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of my travel, um, I do a tremendous amount of international travel still. So uh, Australia, New Zealand are, are very common destinations. Europe's very common. United Arab Emirates is, is common. So I, I still do a significant amount of that. Mm-hmm. And I would like to say my travel is less it's probably not less, but my pro- travel is controlled when I can select when I go yeah. rather than, than so I can move it around, you know, Flexible. hunting seasons and birthdays and some of those sorts of things where before I had no choice in any of it. Right. So kind of that's um, a good lead into another question I was uh, wanting to ask you from all of your your international travels that you've done with your consulting, what what is your favorite country that you've been to and why? Oh man, so many cool countries that mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've been to. And, and it's interesting because the experience that I have in a country may not be your typical experience because my experience always revolves around horses. Right. It never revolves around tourism. Right. So I I really enjoy Australia. I really enjoy New Zealand. They're a lot of fun. Um, I really enjoy the United Arab Emirates. Uh, it's so different, and the the hoops that they have to jump through to have feed ingredients for for horses was was overwhelming. Um, you know, but I like Ireland. You know, the the quality of horse people and the and how horses are ingrained in the soul of, of people there is, is really interesting. So the, the really cool thing about, I guess my job is first and foremost, I'm a good shipper. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't get jet lag and I don't have a lot of those type issues. So That's getting handy. on a plane, yeah, exactly. Getting <laughs> on a plane and being adjusted to the time zone is, is not a problem. So uh, I really like that. I've started doing a lot of work in Japan Japan's a, a beautiful country and very polite people and, and very willing to learn. So I, I like that too. So I, I guess it'd be a better list of which ones don't I like to go yeah. to. So, uh, cause they all have good horses and whether it's a, a thoroughbred or a standard bred or a quarter horse or whatever the breed of horse, I guess I just admire good horses and I've been right. lucky to see some really good ones in my time. Can you share any unique experiences that you've kind of observed in in all of your travels? Uh, Any differences that you've seen with obviously what we're accustomed to and what you've been accustomed to growing up in your education and then traveling to some of these other countries? Are the is there any like unique experience that you can share or that you've observed that you just thought was such a cool thing? Yeah, I think the the cool thing is 
you know, when we're here in the United States, we um, we get different vernacular for different horse terms. So when you feed a uh, horse hay, you feed them a flake of hay, or you feed them a a scoop of of grain or a coffee can of grain. And I thought one of the unique things is different parts of the world they call those things differently. So in Australia, what we would call a flake of hay is called a biscuit. A biscuit. Okay. Yeah. And they don't call grain in scoops or cans. They call it a dipper, dipper. of grain. A dipper of grain. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that those different terms, and those are just Australia terms. And then in Europe, they have uh, different terms as well. So I, I get a kick out of that. It's all talking about the same thing, but uh, different vernacular to describe the thing, same thing is is unique. And then in Japan, I don't have a clue what they're saying, but it's ironic. I can I can communicate based on volumes of feed because I know numbers and they know numbers. Right. And so, so at least that's so standard it, across the world. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and then it experiences uh, probably one of the the coolest things I got to see is. When I was in the United Arab Emirates, we we got to see the Thoroughbred World Championships, which was was first of all very cool. And I got to see a horse that I consulted for and on win the World Championship, which at that particular time was the world's richest horse race. Oh wow! But earlier in the day, we were the guests of the royal family, and we went to camel races. Oh, interesting. So, so there were two areas of the of the camel races. There were where the the handlers of the camels were, the the jockeys, the Bedouins, uh, you know, people like that were in in one area. And so we got out of the car, and so I thought that's where we we're going, and and so started walking there. And they're like, no, 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 this way, Doctor Duran. And they took us into a an area where there was carpet laid out on the sand, and they were all these very plush couches and stuff like that. And they're serving all these expensive desserts and things like that while we're watching camels race. And I was just really taken with that. And, and the fact that camels, uh, they used to have jockeys, but now they don't have jockeys. The, the, the Bedouins used to have to wear Velcro pants to stay on and not fall off. And, oh, wow. and they were having too many kids get hurt doing that. So now all the jockeys are remote control. They're a little electronic box that sits on top of the camel, and that electronic box has got a little remote control, and the remote control runs a little arm that is the 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 whip, if you will. Uh -huh. But they all have to be calibrated so they can't hit the camel too hard, and yeah. they only go so so many revolutions. Yeah. Exactly, so many revolutions per, and then the the trainers drive on the inside of the track, leaning out the window, running their remote control, and I was just just taken with that. And then now every jockey in the United States and every trainer in the United States, I think in the back of my mind, I said, "Don't forget, you can all be replaced by some electronic thing. The technology's there." Apparently, it is. What a unique experience. Did uh did your wife get to go with you on that trip? Um, she, she's went on some, some trips, uh, with me, she'll pick the, the country that, that she wants to go to. And, yeah. and when I get travel there, she, she goes on some of them. Uh, the other interesting thing is, is I, I promised each of my children that I would take them on an international trip, yeah. an international trip with, without their mother, mm -hmm. that it would just be, just be us. So, yeah. um, 
my my son chose Japan mm-hmm. and he thought it was great. He's he's quite tall. And then uh, <laughs> that particular time he had long hair. So he kind of looked like they said some Japanese rock star or something. Yeah. So all the girls were wanting to get their picture taken with him. And <laughs> this American. Quite, <laughs> exactly. He was quite taken with that. And then my daughter, for her international destination, she chose Australia. Uh-huh. So for two two weeks, we went through Australia, and she went to all the, the horse farms with me, and and we got to tour around. She got to hold a koala and mm-hmm. pet kangaroos and do all the things that you'd expect. Uh, but they were, you know, both trips without their mom, which, you know, thank goodness I didn't bonk and get them hurt or anything, but they had a fun <laughs> That's that's a really neat experience that you're able to uh, offer your kids. That's another perk of being able to to have your own business and and do all of that. That's that's really neat. Yeah, they got to fly business class, and then when they started Fancy. flying on their own, they, yeah, exactly. They felt, hey, we don't get to sit up there unless like, we're with wait you. a minute. I was duped. exactly <laughs> exactly. So. Um, Moving into maybe some other species, what other livestock experience do you have? Uh, you do you own anything now besides horses, or and what did you so, have growing up? So growing up, I we we had the the full smorgasbord of animals. Of course, we had the horses, yeah, uh, and then we had show cattle. So we we did that quite extensively, and then we had show lambs as well. So I had a flock at one time of about 50 ewes that I took care of. And that's actually what uh, was a lot of my savings that that put me through my undergraduate portion of, of college. So had okay. all everything pretty much growing up. Uh, now, uh, since the kids have left home, we've we've gotten rid of the the chickens so we don't have those anymore but we had chickens when they were growing up mm-hmm. uh they had sheep as well okay. uh they had they had steers and and now since they're grown and and gone I still have my horse addiction so I have uh four horses mm-hmm. that that are around here right now uh, we have cattle. Uh, I live on a a ranch and we grow alfalfa hay and orchard grass hay. So occasionally, unfortunately, hay doesn't always turn out like you'd hope. Sometimes it gets rained on or right. there's some other damage to it. And rather than discount that hay and, and, and sell that off, I decided that, hey, how tough is having a couple cows around? Well, that couple cows is now grown into to 20 cows and and it's more of a project now that happens i mean it's it's kind of a thing in the chicken world they talk about chicken math how you start yeah. off with just like five and then tomorrow you have 30 or 50 <laughs> and it's exactly. i mean it's really you can you can do that with many other species as well it, it's not hard to get one after another because, you know, then another one needs a friend and. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then as an as an overachiever, I can't have normal cattle. So, you know, I have to buy, you know, the best bulls and I have to have a, a synchronization program. And uh, this year I'm going to do some AI. And, and so, so are they purebred then? No, no, you, you do all that and you have commercial, huh? 
Exactly. And they're not worth anything more than anybody <laughs> else's, but they look good. They look real good. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. Yeah, we have uh, we have some commercial cows as well. Slowly, surely, slowly, but surely we are growing our herd and it's it's fun. The kids enjoy it. What is uh, what is your absolute favorite experience that you've had so far in your career involving horses? If you look back um, from be, even since you were a kid to now, what what do you, what do you think you would label as your favorite experience? If you could only choose one, um, some of the success that that the horses that we've been able to design diets for have went on to accomplish. I mean, and there's there's many of those, but I just get tremendous pride in, you know, seeing a horse that's, you know, at the, at the home place or in the United States or wherever the farm is and training and training. And, you know, we think this horse has potential and we, we get a diet that works for him. And then that horse goes on to, you know, to, to win the Kentucky Derby, or I've been involved with horses that have, you know, won the triple crown and, um, and horses that have won gold medals and Olympics and, and, many, many different accomplishments. And, uh, the, the riders are, are so tremendously appreciative of, of the help that you gave. And so I'm, um, I'm rotten at betting on horses because I always, you know, will pick the horse that I fed or something yeah. like that, something like that. But I'd say that's probably my, my greatest experience was just seeing some of the, you know, the achievements of the individual horses. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I mean, that's, that's such a good feeling being able to, to offer something that you, that experience, that knowledge that you have and have it come back like tenfold because like it's proven that what you're doing is, is good and that you're good at what you do. You know, but it's not always, you know, the, the, the high end horses, you know, right. We've, we've, we've helped on, you know, some, some horses that had, you know, muscular issues or different dietary issues, you know, were were somebody's trail riding horse, but was very, very important and, you know, able to get that horse, you know, back to, uh, to a normal life and back to a productive life. And so it's, it's not always, you know, the, the, the big trophies, but there's just been a tremendous amount of those. And for me, horse people have always been very, very willing to listen in and to, to learn. So I I've been lucky in that sense. That's a good experience to have. So another one, um, I'm curious to know if you have any interesting or weird stories or experiences that you've had as an equine nutritionist. So is there like, what's the strangest thing that a horse owner has asked you if they could feed their horses or Anything like that? Um, I remember one time I was in Italy and they were talking about um, feeding horses a loaf. And so, you know, fresh from Australia, I didn't know if that was some sort of measure of hay or anything like that. Right. It, it wasn't. It was, it was actually day old bread from the bakery oh. that they were, were feeding these horses. So, you know, your initial response is you don't feed bread to horses. But then if you back up and say, all right, well, bread's made of, of wheat, wheat <laughs> and wheat is a grain, yeah. you kind of do the back calculation. You can kind of see how that that works out. Huh. Probably the the weirdest horse experience I ever had was um, it was after 
uh, 9-11 and I was actually traveling in the United Arab Emirates and uh, had to go over there again for the royal family and do some some seminars for uh, a feed mill that they owned over there and teaching them how to make feed and, and that sort of thing. Well, when we when I arranged all this, I never really said anything about payment and they never really said anything about payment. And so, heck, I didn't care. I was just glad to be going to yeah. to Dubai, and I thought it was pretty cool. So, I re- I remember that just before we we left, the 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 royal highness himself actually handed me an envelope and a box, and said, "Don't declare the envelope to customs, and just put the box in your luggage." So. I did just exactly that. My yeah. son's like, are you out, out of your mind? <laughs> and I said, well, I didn't really think about it. So I, I got just doing as you were told. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I figured, geez, I didn't really think about it. And so I, I got, I got home and you know, the, the envelope, you know, contained hundred dollar bills, lots of them. Yeah. And, and my son's like looking at him and he was home from college at the time and he's asking, are these real? And I said, yeah, they're pretty much real. And he's looking at the, you know, the bank things and he goes, you can't deposit that in a U.S. bank. They're going to think you're a drug runner or something. You're going to have to, <laughs> you know, make smaller deposits. And I said, yeah, well, they gave me something else too. And he goes, well, what'd they give you? And I said, I don't know. I didn't open it. And he goes, well, what is it? And I said, it's a box. And he goes, well, where's it at? I said, well, it's in my luggage. And he goes, you put a box <laughs> in your luggage, luggage. And he didn't look in it? <laughs> for, from, a, from a foreign country. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much what I did. So he goes, well, where is it? So I dug it out. And uh, ironically, it was a, a Rolex presidential watch. Oh, wow. And he's looking up and he goes, is this thing real? And I said, well, I would guess it is. And so he's looking at the authenticity and he goes, oh, my gosh, this watch is almost worth a semester at college. <laughs> so and ironically, to this to this date, I don't ever wear a watch. It's still at home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, for them, it's probably just a drop in the bucket. They're like, this is just this is what we do. <laughs> exactly. So. You know, and, and I on that trip, I wanted to buy my wife a gift. So, you know, they they took us down to the to the market. And so we're looking at things. And I remember, I don't know, maybe a tennis bracelet or something like that, you know, and I said, well, you know, how much is this? And so the merchant said, you know, a number. And then because of the people we were with, the, the people that we were with shook their head. No. And then the price went in half. Oh, and then in a quarter, just because wow. of they looked, they looked out at the car and saw the license plate number on the car. And they knew that that was the Royal family. Yeah. So just weird, all horse experience, but just really weird how the world works. Yeah. Well, and then you get into other countries and just culturally how they do things and handle things. And it's sometimes it's hard to kind of get, I guess, if you've never really been able to experience travel like that. Um, I've only done very minimal travel outside of the U.S., but it's it's so neat to be able to see things from a different point of view and especially seeing how other people in other countries respond to or uh, take in like Americans because uh, like my my limited travel has been to Australia and I went there for volleyball um, right out of high school and I just remember just kind of their experience with Americans at least most of them were just like wow like they're just so interested, so intrigued 
by us. <laughs> yep, and that's that is very much the case, and and it's the same, you know, with with horses. You know, they they want to know whether it's an Australian or somebody from New Zealand or or from Japan. They they want to know, you know, what's new in the United States and and what's going on. But quite honestly, I mean, if you pay attention, I learn a lot of stuff from, from these countries of, of how they do things. And, and, you know, I've used some of that, you know, with clients here in the United States. Mm -hmm. So to kind of wrap things up, what do you wish you had known 10, 15 years ago, you know, maybe going back to when you started PHN or even graduating, you know, with your PhD, what, would you tell your younger self if you could go back in time? In my whole education path, I was very much uh, science courses, those sorts of things. I guess what I wish I would have done is I wish I would have taken some business classes that I had more uh, knowledge of the of the business world because where my job currently is nutrition, but that nutrition has to be a business. And I didn't have any business experience. So, boy, I wish I would have went back and, and told my younger self, don't take all the science classes, take some other classes and think a bit outside the box. It would, it would really help you. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, uh, that's good advice to your younger self for sure. I think it, it helps to be a little well, well-rounded in that sense where I, Sometimes I think we can get on these paths where we're so focused on what we want to do. And once, especially once we figure out what we want to do, we kind of get really set. Uh, and then, you know, not really as younger people, you know, we don't always know what we need to know. Uh, so I think this is good advice, especially if there are any younger individuals listening to your interview today, knowing if they're in that place, that time in their life knowing, oh, you know, maybe I should sign up for a couple business classes because who knows, you know, what you're going to come across, who you're going to work for, or, you know, if you end up running your own business someday, it's, you know, really handy to be able to have that education behind you, make it a little bit easier path of least yeah, resistance, sure. I guess. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dr. Duran. I had a great time with our conversation today. Uh, it's been really fun kind of getting to know some of these new, unique experiences that you've had and all of your fun travels and just your experience in your career. And so we're going to have to have you on again to talk about Excellent. a new topic. So until next time, thanks again for jumping on here with us. I appreciate you having me. All right. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.